So John 1, 19 to 21, um, page 1612. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Thanks, Helen. It seems that there's uh, perhaps never been a more complicated time than now to have clarity on who we are, clarity on our own identities. Um, when you think about it, it's tricky describing who you are. Uh, where do you start with a question like that? Um, nearly all of us will introduce ourselves with our name, uh, but that doesn't really say a lot, does it? Some of us might uh, think first about our physical traits or our gender. Uh, others will start answering that question by our family connections, or perhaps our jobs is what defines us. Maybe our interests or our hobbies, our country of origin might come into play there somewhere. Now, I could tell you I'm uh, an Australian-born, six-foot-something uh, man with not much hair, which doesn't make me old, as we've established in our kids' talk. Um, I love soccer. I have a great wife and three young boys, uh, and I'm a pastor. Now, there's some information about me. But there's probably at least 100 people in the world who could say exactly the same thing. They're not me, I'm not them. So what does that information tell you? Does it make me unique or not? For some of us, uh, we might not actually say this out loud if we're trying to describe it to someone else, but maybe how we think first about ourselves is how successful we've been or are. Maybe we think first about our bank account or our investment portfolio or how high up the career chain we've gone. Perhaps others uh, might have their identity tied very closely to an event, uh, maybe some tragedy or injustice uh, that's come to dominate how we think and therefore how we live. 
Uh, for our youth here today, and a big welcome back for the Year 7s who joined us for the first time uh, last week, I look back on my high school days and it feels like most of high school was just working out roughly uh, what group do you identify with? Uh, where do you belong? Where do you fit in the best? Is it the sporty group or you know, the, the nerdy group or the musical group? Which one is it uh, that you identify with most? But looking back, I realise it's even more complicated these days than it was for me because I don't have to worry about my identity online. Uh, of course, everyone now has a digital identity, uh, sometimes a very carefully crafted image uh, that we send out for public consumption. Then you have to ask, well, is the digital version of me the same as the real me? And what does that even mean? What is the real me? Is it how I feel inside? Is it how others see me? Is it both? Our modern world, I think, complicates things a lot because we're told the real you isn't defined by anything like your race or your family or even your biology uh, sometimes. The real you seems to be most about how you feel, we're told. And so we're told you can identify with how you feel and that true freedom actually comes from being true to your inner self. It's quite confusing though, isn't it? Because what if being true to my inner self, like what if my inner self is a complete jerk? Like being true to that doesn't seem that good, does it? If that's who I really am. Maybe there was a simpler time, I don't know, maybe there was when uh, people were confident in who they are. They'd say, I'm the blacksmith's son, what else do you want to know? That was it, maybe, I don't know. In any case, it seems to me we are very confused in our world about identity, who we are. It's becoming more and more difficult to be authentic because we don't know what we're being authentic to, and so confidence gets shattered in how to live in a complicated world. I think the question, who are you, can be very unnerving if you think about it too much and don't have anything solid to go to. But Jesus really does answer all of that. Jesus gives us great clarity and great confidence and therefore great freedom to live authentic lives. And I hope we'll see some of that today as we look through this part of John's Gospel. Uh, for two weeks now, we've been working through John's account of Jesus' life. Uh, this book is written by John, uh, Jesus' disciple, probably his best mate in his time on earth. And John, the author, he started uh, two weeks ago, we've been looking at uh, the, the brilliant introduction as John unpacked the identity of Jesus as both fully God and fully human. It's an amazing introduction, isn't it? Today, though, we've just read in John's account of how Jesus gets introduced into the story of history. It's strange, though, it's not the Christmas story, is it? It doesn't start with the, um, the manger in Bethlehem. Uh, John, the author, just launches straight into the point, right at Jesus' life, uh, where he's just before he starts his public ministry. Now, as we meet Jesus in this passage, he's still basically completely unknown, just another tradie from the middle of nowhere, no one special, it would seem. He isn't in the spotlight, someone else is. Uh, the person in the spotlight here is someone called John. Now, I realise this might be a bit confusing, but that's not the same person as John the author. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. The main thing to know here about John the Baptist, who we heard about, uh, is that he was a superstar, an absolute legend. Uh, it's probably the reason, I think, that John the author doesn't give him much of an introduction, just says he, you know, he's John. It seems to me it's because his first readers would have known all about John the Baptist. He was a big deal. In fact, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we hear how people from all over Israel would flock to come and hear John preach and to be baptised by him. See, Israel had such a long and rich history of God speaking to them through the great prophets, from people like Moses, uh, as a nation was formed in covenant with God, uh, through to Malachi, sort of the last of the prophets of the Old Testament. 
God had always sent his word by his prophets to his people. Uh, the word that would direct people's hearts and lives uh, and to help God worship, as, uh, help them worship God as they should. But as you get to John the Baptist, it seems God has been silent for about 400 years, maybe more. 400 years of silence uh, for a nation who is used to hearing and being directed by God. In that time, there does seem to be a growing hunger to hear from God. Uh, many Israelites were carefully studying their scriptures, seeing what the prophets of old used to say. They had spoken of a time where God would send his king, send his Messiah, and he would come and fix everything and restore the nation. So as John the Baptist burst on the scene, he fits the bill. He looks like a prophet. He's a, he's a wild man living in the desert, and he sounds like a prophet uh, with a fiery message of the need for all of Israel to repent. For the first time in a few hundred years, a real prophet was making a stir. God was at work again, and he was speaking again. But what was he up to? What was actually happening must have been the conversation in many, uh, many dinner, over di many dinner tables in the marketplace, all around the country. You can imagine John the Baptist was a topic of discussion, the man of the hour. He really was a superstar. Now, the conversation we read about in, our, in the passage just read, I think it helps us see just how big a deal John the Baptist was. The leaders of his country sent a very important delegation to go and find out what's going on, who are you? He's not just a random guy in the middle of nowhere. Now, I find this conversation, it's kind of funny, I suppose, like trying to imagine being there watching this exchange between John, this guy who looks like a, a wild man, and some very important, very impressive people from the big city. They ask him questions. Every, every answer he gives gets shorter and shorter, kind of like he's getting impatient. He starts by saying, I'm not the Messiah. Well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. It gets shorter and shorter in his answer, as if he's a man who doesn't waste his words. And they're asking here, aren't they, about his identity. Who are you? The three specific identities they ask him about uh, might sound random to us, uh, the Messiah, Elijah, and the prophet. Uh, but these three titles, these three identities, uh, Israel had been waiting for each of these to come. Each one was promised in the Old Testament, and the expectation had grown and grown that when they came... God was going to start a new age. He's going to fix everything. An age of blessing and prosperity for not just Israel, but for the entire world. Expectation was growing. I'll give you just one example of this here is Elijah. Now, Elijah is probably, I think, the most impressive of the Old Testament prophets. He's one of my favourites. And last year, we looked at the book of One Kings, and we saw some of Elijah's ministry. And later in the year, we're going to look at Two Kings and keep seeing more of him. Now, it's not like... People were ex uh, actually expecting Elijah to literally come, uh, but they were expecting one like him to come and be ministering just before the end of days. So in the final verses here in, uh, in Malachi, in the final verse we have in our Old Testament actually, written probably 400 years before John, uh, Malachi writes this, and this will be on the screen. God says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else they will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, in context, the day of the Lord was to give God's people joy and, to, and give them righteousness. It's the enemies, the wicked, who would be destroyed. That was actually a message of great hope for them, because surely, you know, you're reading that passage, the Roman overlords would be in mind for destruction. And so the Israelites just want to know, does John see himself as this Elijah-like figure they're all waiting for? 
John says no. Now, verse 22, it's, it's easy to imagine the frustration of the delegation of fancy people as they ask, well, well, who are you? Just give us something to go back and report. We've come all the way out here into the sticks. We've got this form we have to fill in. Just give us something we need to put on it. Again, not wasting his words, in verse 23, John gives an astounding answer. Who is he? Well, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, he is the voice. He is the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. That is, his preaching is laying out the red carpet for God himself to come walking through. Now, if we were to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 40, where John's quoting from here, we'd see that idea of making straight. It's kind of about making the road system better, um, like making hills flatter and valleys being raised up level, uh, so that God's people who were stuck at, at that time, stuck in exile in Babylon, could sort of pour back home along this great highway back to Jerusalem. Now, we looked at Isaiah last year, a uh, series there. See, it all fits together. It was all in preparation to get us to John, Isaiah, 1 Kings. Uh, but from a series in Isaiah, we saw that from chapter 40 onwards, the expectation grows and grows that, yes, exile would end, but with it, God himself would step into history in a brand new way. It's as if he himself would come down that straight highway with them, with cosmic consequences. So who's John the Baptist? He's the guy saying, get ready, the Lord is coming, and everything is about to change. Now imagine for a moment, uh, you're going out to a concert to see the biggest or you know, most popular band or musician in the world, uh, where it be you know, the Rolling Stones or Taylor Swift, you get the idea, you pick, you pick your favourite. Um, you go to that concert, and they knock it out of the park, a brilliant performance. But at the end of their set, uh, they're about to leave the stage, they say, thanks so much for coming tonight, but actually, the real show is just about to start. We're just the curtain raisers tonight, surprise. We're about to leave the stage, and someone is about to come on, no one's ever heard of them, but believe me, they make us look terrible. That's how good they are. You realise, that's basically what John the Baptist is doing. A superstar making a gigantic splash, then stepping off the stage leaving everyone on the edge of their seats. What comes next? But John the Baptist uh, is certainly confusing uh, for the fancy people from Jerusalem. Uh, the group of Pharisees in verse 24, they've come uh, to, to ask him questions. And they say, well, look, if you aren't anyone special, why are you baptising people? They can't work it out. What's going on? Now, for us, baptism as Christians is something we might uh, be very familiar with. It's a pretty standard part of uh, Christian discipleship. Uh, we actually have some baptisms coming up in the next couple of weeks, which is great. Um, baptism is a, is a public showing that we are disciples of Jesus, and it's more than that as well. Uh, with a symbolism of water, it's a sign of new life, uh, of new life and forgiveness of sins. That the old life, ruled by our sinful hearts, uh, that's dead. It's died with Christ. And we have new life, empowered not by sin anymore, but by the Holy Spirit. Uh, baptism captures that sort of beautiful gospel message of new life and forgiveness of sins. But what was John doing? It was a bit odd that this is all before Jesus. Uh, it's a bit different, actually, to the baptism we know of as Christians. In John's time, baptism wasn't actually unknown. Uh, it was something that Jewish people were involved in from time to time. Uh, sometimes it would be involved in uh, the conversion to Judaism. Uh, people would baptise themselves as part of their um, public declaration that they'd converted to Judaism. Uh, for other Jewish groups, uh, baptism, just a washing, a ritual washing, was part of a religious ceremony all about spiritual purity. But what's really odd with John is that in those other cases, baptism was something you would do to yourself, wash yourself. But John was baptising other people. That's very odd. 
It's almost as if he has divine authority to do this new thing. We aren't told much about it here in John's Gospel, but in the other Gospels, we're told that John's is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't actually signify a new life or a new heart in the same way that Christian baptism does. It's not about the Holy Spirit going to work in our lives and changing our identities from the inside out. Speaking of identity, in a section where John is asked repeatedly, who are you? I think we see here a great model for us to base our own lives on. How should we think about our own identities? See, John here only seems to identify himself with Jesus as the most important thing. His whole identity is tied to who Jesus is. John's a superstar, but he doesn't talk about his success in ministry or anything like that. He's just a voice. The biggest spiritual superstar of his day is he's just a servant. He's just a spokesperson. And so verse 26, I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Who is he? He's no one. He's nothing, really. No one compares to the one coming after him, Jesus. In comparison to Jesus, the big superstar of the day is not even worthy of being a servant tasked with the most humiliating of tasks, untying someone's filthy, stinking sandals. John says, I'm not even worthy for that. That's how good this new guy is. That's how John sees himself. Now, how, else, how do we know what else John would say about himself? But it's clear here, actually, that the most important thing, the central thing for his own identity is he recognises, because of the sheer greatness of Jesus, nothing else about John's own identity really matters that much in comparison. Only Jesus really matters in how we define ourselves. I realise that's a very big thing to say in a world uh, that says our identity, our true self is sacred, uh, that no one else should define us or tell us who to be. I'm sure for our youth here today, um, you guys hear that basic message day in, day out, I think in all kinds of ways. Uh, phrases like, follow your dreams, be true to yourself, find the authentic way to express the inner you. Those are the sorts of messages we hear in Disney movies in all sorts of ways. But here, this true humility shown by John, I think is a far better model for Jesus' disciples. After all, do you find it appealing uh, to be more like John, just to have clarity about himself? He knows exactly who he's not. Doesn't he sound like the most confident person just to engage in life, but also strangely the most humble? Who am I? Well, that doesn't really matter. I'm just a servant of an incredible king. I get to witness to his glory and grace. Let me tell you more about him. Now, how can we think about ourselves and how we identify ourselves? How can we do that in a way that does this better? I think naturally uh, we can tend towards identifying ourselves without Jesus that much. For some of us, this might be a brand new idea, identifying ourselves based on who Jesus is. That might be something new and big and worth thinking through carefully. Uh, for others here, we get this idea. Uh, we'd like to know how to make Jesus more central to how we see ourselves and how we live. And I know that's far easier said than done. Uh, having our identity based entirely on Jesus is a lifelong project we get working to, working towards. And I'll make some suggestions, uh, some simple suggestions about how we might do that at the end of the sermon today. But the key thing, I think, the key to it all, is not think we can fix our identities or shape who we are by focusing on ourselves, but simply just focusing on Jesus more and on who he is. 
That'll change everything. And so, who is Jesus? Like I said, we spent the last two weeks carefully thinking about Jesus' nature and identity, fully God and fully heaven, fully God, fully human, sent from heaven to bring salvation to our world. Now, in the first part of this chapter, that was simply stated by John the author uh, at the beginning. He didn't give us any evidence that Jesus is fully divine or fully human. But that's actually what he's doing for the rest of this gospel. He's giving us evidence. John the author is like a brilliant lawyer building a case to demonstrate just who Jesus is, that those claims of his identity are true. In fact, John the author seems to treat us, the readers, like a jury. Uh, We have to make a decision at the end of his book about who this Jesus guy is. Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Messiah? Did he really come to forgive my sins? Uh, For those of us here today, perhaps looking into uh, these things uh, for the first time or reconsidering Jesus for the first time in a long time, um, I do hope and uh, I do hope it would be really helpful to stick around with us as we walk through John's account of Jesus, looking at the evidence week in, week out, to see for yourself what the evidence has to say about who Jesus really is. And so John the author, as he starts this story, he calls the first witness to the stand. John the Baptist is the expert witness the first major piece of evidence to put together. Now today, it's not that unusual for experts, uh, professionals, to be called into a courtroom uh, to give their professional opinion in a case. So, you know, a doctor or a scientist might be coming in to present evidence as part of a court case. You know, uh, there might be an important medical question involved, like, you know, was, was this person legally insane at the time? And the doctor or the psychologist uh, would give their response. An, et- an expert wis- witness that gives testimony should be trusted. And John the Baptist is giving a public testimony, not just as a random guy, but as an expert witness on all things spiritual. He's the greatest prophet the nation has had for nearly half a millennium. On top of that, the main thing, uh, the main thing that John the Baptist reveals about himself and his own identity here is that he, John, is sent from God. In verse 33, uh, if you have your Bibles open, it's very subtle, but notice that John truly is a prophet sent by God. Verse 33 says, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, and he goes on, John was sent. He's sent by God. And so his testimony counts. We actually saw this uh, last week. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 6, uh, we were told right at the start that John was sent from God. So chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, we might want to know uh, what evidence is there of John being sent by God. Again, that's a big claim to make. But it seems to me at the time it was self-evident that he was. Everyone around him just saw him as a great prophet of some sort. He was clearly sent by God in their minds. That in itself, I think, is a valid piece of evidence to consider that no one was contesting John being sent by God. The other thing that makes John's testimony well worth trusting, I think, is that what he says about Jesus next is exactly what Jesus goes on to do. Jesus will take away the sin of the world and he'll give the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. So let's have a look at the expert witness. What does he testify? What do we need to know about Jesus? Well, first, we see that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. Uh, Many of us will be familiar with the idea of Jesus being a lamb, like a lamb. Uh, That's a very common sort of motif in Christian thinking. 
But if you've never heard that phrase before, it's a very odd way to introduce someone, isn't it? Here's a lamb. It's actually quite hard to know what John the Baptist is thinking. Like, how is a lamb going to take away sin? Um, He might have in mind uh, the sacrificial lamb from Leviticus and some of the things happening there. Or maybe John has in mind the servant of Isaiah 53 we heard about last year, who, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter to bear the sins of Israel. Whatever John had in mind, this description of Jesus ties together actually many promises of the Old Testament. The promises that God would pay for and deal with our sin. Uh, to deal with our sin, which is really our failure to love God and to love our neighbour as we should. It's, for every one of us, our biggest problem. As well as paying for and forgiving us, God also promises many times in the Old Testament to send his Holy Spirit to actually fix our hearts, actually making us able to love God as we ought to. And sure enough, as we'll see as we keep working through John's Gospel, John the author will go on to tell us that's what Jesus does, exactly, exactly that. As he dies on the cross, the perfect sacrifice for all our sin. After his resurrection, Jesus does send his Holy Spirit to us, his people. And the Spirit goes to work transforming our lives, every part of our lives, day by day, equipping and empowering us for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, or as the language here, Jesus baptising with the Holy Spirit, that's a huge shift in world history. Uh, it's a brand new way of God dealing with people and being present in our lives, refreshing dry souls and helping us love uh, by the Spirit the things of God. John the Baptist's testimony includes how he knows for sure that Jesus is the one. It's a pretty astounding story. Verse 32. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father, he demonstrated that Jesus is his Son and that his Spirit remains on him. Final big sentence here, verse 34. I have seen and I testify, says John, that this is God's chosen one. Again, that language of chosen one, again, points us back to the prophet Isaiah, who promised that one day God would choose someone, uh, someone to anoint with his spirit to come and bring salvation to our world. There's a lot going on in this short passage, but John's testimony is that the many, many long-standing promises of God are all tied up in this one figure, this one person, Jesus And that means everything was about to change in our world. Now, something odd that I've skipped over so far is in verse 31. In verse 31, John the Baptist, uh, he's talking about Jesus. He says, I myself did not know him. John's saying he did not know Jesus. Now, for those familiar with the other gospel accounts, that might strike you as a bit strange. Uh, We know from elsewhere that Jesus and John the Baptist were related. Their mothers were related and knew each other quite well. John and Jesus were about the same age. They would have likely grown up together or seen each other on holidays or whatever. So it seems odd at first, but perhaps what John's saying isn't so much, I've never seen this guy, I've never met him before. It seems more like he's saying, I didn't know he was the chosen one until this all happened. Even John, the great prophet, didn't recognise in Jesus, his cousin basically, he didn't recognise in him anything that special until God showed him just how special Jesus really is. It actually took something special to reveal the nature of Jesus to John. 
There can be some parallels perhaps for us today. Um, Some of us will be very, very familiar with Jesus. We've grown up hearing all the stories about him, familiar with him. But has God shown us yet that Jesus does take away our sins, that he can give us the spirit, that Jesus can change us truly at the deepest level? It was right in front of John, but he kind of missed it. Which I think tells us it's not so much what we know, not just what we know, We need God, actually, to reveal this to us, this great truth about the identity of Jesus. So we need God to reveal it, but also that requires first our hearts being open, actually, to that revelation. Because with it it means we need to be open to the possibility that Jesus might just turn our lives upside down. And that might be a bit uncomfortable. But do you remember how John the Baptist uh, was preparing the way for Jesus? It was by preaching repentance. That word means sort of turning a new direction. Uh, And it seems to be about turning away from a life centred on me, instead being humble before God and having a life centred on him. Because that's the heart sort of response we need to listen as God reveals who Jesus truly is. For those of us here who are disciples of Jesus, who who know him as our saviour and our king, uh, to finish where we started with our identity... However we think about who we are, if we're followers of Jesus, it's actually set in stone uh, that our identity is already joined with Jesus. Whether we think about it or not, that's actually the case. We are united with him intimately as his people. Yes, a lot of the time we don't live like that, but that's actually an unshakable truth. If we trust Jesus with our salvation, we are united with him. Our life becomes one of complete service to him. So John the Baptist, he could have had his own gigantic following. He could have been a superstar with popularity and an easy life. But he models for us the clarity we ought to try and have ourselves. Verse 31. The reason I came with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. His whole ministry had one purpose. His whole life, one purpose. To make Jesus known. We have a culture very confused about how we find and express our identity. It seems that one of the things that younger generations especially have gravitated to is attaching our identity to a noble cause, to be involved in a great purpose, to consume our life, uh, often being activists for um, things like the climate or justice or those in poverty. There are many great causes that we could throw our lives into, even to define ourselves by. But there is no better cause, no better purpose to life than serving God's chosen one working to make him known in our world, making it known that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's no better purpose to stake our lives to. There's no better way to identify ourselves with uh, than to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. So I want to make a suggestion as I finish uh, for the week ahead. Um, How do we grow? How do we grow in the way we identify and uh, express the identity of being in Christ? Well, one way you could do it, I suppose, is uh, as you get to your Monday morning class or your Monday morning meeting, you try this. Say, hi, I'm Cam. Uh, I'm a servant of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You could try that. See how it goes. Let me know. A different suggestion. A far better one, I think. Why not this week, start each day, or if you have to sort of do it on your commute or whatever it may be, somewhere early in your day, just have a simple prayer to come back to. It doesn't have to be word for word like this, but for example... Uh, Lord Jesus, you really are everything. My life is entirely for your service and glory. So please help me live like it today. 
I'll say that again. Lord Jesus, you are everything. My life is entirely for your service and glory. Help me live like that today. Would you join me as I pray to that end? Lord Jesus, uh, here in this room, some of us might know only a little about you. Uh, some know a great deal. Yet for all of us, uh, we ask for the same thing, that you would help us believe that you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that you take away our sin, that you give us life in spirit. We thank you for giving us security and identities being tied up with who you are, with your majesty and your kingdom. And again, we offer ourselves in your service. Every part of our lives, help us bring you honour and glory. Help us uh, see the areas we're holding back, the bits of our identity we don't want you to touch, but to keep to ourselves. And so then, help us repent. And please, help us live with great purpose uh, of making you known in our world, we pray. Amen.